Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. Great to be with you this evening, and I, um, I am sorry to hear about the COVID cases going around. Um, those of you who are suffering at the moment from that, uh, you're in my prayers, and um, please uh, continue to look after one another, as I know everyone is doing. Um, that passage that we, that we just read from John 19 of Jesus' death, uh, one of the things that, that strikes me about that passage is um, John's gospel all the way through is very theological, gives us a lot of ways of understanding what God is doing and what Jesus is doing. But this chapter is really very matter of fact. It's just very descriptive about what took place on the cross. There's not really much of an attempt by John to explain why Jesus' death is so significant. And I think the first thing that we need to do is is recognise that what John's doing in this chapter, he's main goal is to say this really took place in history and I was there to see it. I saw the water and blood gush from Jesus' side. Jesus was really a man, the word in flesh, and he did die. And everything we talk about tonight depends upon that fact. Unless this really did take place, our faith... The Christian faith means nothing. So that's the most important thing that John's trying to tell us today. But as we look at this passage, what we're going to really be be doing is exploring uh, a couple of... uh, What John does throughout his book is he's been giving us hints all the way through. He's been giving us these tools for understanding and interpreting this event that takes place today. So we're going to have a look at how other parts of John and other parts of Scripture help us to understand Jesus' death as well. So if if I was going to invent a new religion, and, and I'm not planning to, by the way, but if I was, one of the big things I would have to explain is the problem of suffering in the world. The existence of suffering can't be ignored. Any worldview, any attempt to explain what life is about has to address the problem of suffering. And and we can try, and perhaps for much of our lives, we try not to think about suffering, but at some point we'll be confronted and have to make sense of it in some kind of way. And I know that for each of us here... And for those of us on Zoom, there are many here who are wrestling with suffering right now, wrestling with suffering in chronic ways, wrestling with grief and lament, groaning at the brokenness of the world. And I think this passage has a lot to teach us about suffering. If you look at the various world religions, all of them have something to say about suffering. So in in Hinduism, 
suffering is alleviated in future reincarnations, reincarnated selves based on a person's actions in their present life. In Buddhism, suffering is an evil that's associated with this physical world. And, and so the answer is to escape the mortal realm and transcend to another plane of existence. Islam and Judaism have a more realist approach to suffering, accepting it as part of life with the hope that suffering will end in the afterlife. But Christianity is the only world religion, as, as far as I know, to make the claim that God himself would take on flesh and enter into suffering and death. And so as we reflect on Jesus' death at the hands of expert Roman torturers, we're hearing a story that's too scandalous for the imagination, too scandalous for people to actually make up. It's a story that locates a horrendous public torture as the place where God's glory and grace culminate. In this story... Suffering is the means by which the whole cosmos is released from captivity. So let's pray as we come to God's word now. Lord God, we praise you for sending your son, Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, to die, to enter into suffering and death. And Lord, as we explore what that means for us as we live life in a world where there is suffering and death, may your spirit speak to us. May we be blown away again by your grace and goodness. Amen. So Jesus' death, it's, it's really the shame and the glory of Christian belief. Uh, in the fourth century, a writer called Eusebius said of Jesus what death is more shameful than to be crucified? What death worse than this condemnation is conceivable? Even now, four centuries later, he remains a reproach among all who have not yet received faith in him. And then another author in the second century, Oregon, said, but if Jesus was really so great, he ought, in order to display his divinity, to have disappeared suddenly from the cross. And these quotes, I think, sum up the scandal of Jesus' death. Even centuries later, the Christian belief is of a crucified God made us a laughing stock. This isn't a story that you told to make a re your religious system more palatable. It's absurd. And yet here we have the story told by a man who claims to have witnessed it firsthand. One who stood at the cross as the God-man, Jesus, died. This is the story of a suffering God. It's the story of a new creation birthed out of God's own agony. And this story hints at the possibility that maybe in the hands of God... Even suffering can be infused with meaning and hope. 
There's many uh, parts of this chapter that we could focus on, but I, I really want to focus on today. There's a, a couple of little hints in here to tell us that John presents Jesus' death as a new Passover, as the great Passover to help us understand this event in history. So let, let me just show you a couple of things in this passage that point that out. So Jesus' death, in all the Gospels, it's agreed on that this occurred at the Passover. Jesus' death was during Passover. And in verses 31 and 42, John mentions it's a day of preparation, the day before the Passover meal where all the foods, they're getting the food ready, slaying the lambs, getting ready for the, for the feast the next day. And did you notice it kept speaking about how everyone was in this great big rush to get Jesus dead and buried before night came and before the feasting began. So there's all these clues that it's Passover time and, and even back in chapter 18, John mentions this at least twice as well. It's the day of preparation. And so John's saying to us over and over again, it's the Passover. It's the Passover. He doesn't want us to miss that fact. And in addition to all this, it, it, it seems that Jesus intentionally used the Passover meal as a picture for his own death. His last meal with the disciples, the, the last supper, bears many similarities to the Passover meal. And then again in chapter 19, there's this part where John says that not one of his bones will be broken. That's also an allusion to the Passover. When Israel celebrated the first Passover in the book of Exodus, they were told specifically, don't break the bones of the lamb being sacrificed. And this became the custom for all Passover meals. So there's something symbolic that John is telling us in that Jesus' bones weren't broken. This man, Jesus, John is saying, he's the real Passover lamb. The great Passover has come. But the question, I guess, is why? Why would John want to associate Jesus' death with the Passover meal? Well, we need to think a bit about what was the Passover. The Passover was a meal of remembrance. Has anyone celebrated a Passover meal? Every bite of food and every sip of drink is meant to evoke memories of the Exodus story. Bitter herbs to remind us of the bitterness of slavery. And, and, and so some of the memories that were arising were memories of the cruel bondage at the hands of Egypt's slave drivers. Memories of God's gracious intervention and saving acts. The blood of lambs painted over doorways to protect God's people from his judgment. The parting of the Red Sea and God's miraculous salvation of Israel. The journey to Mount Sinai and God calling them to be his holy nation. And, and so what John's doing is he's framing Jesus' death as a new exodus. Once again, God is lovingly intervening to rescue his people from bondage. But this time, God is providing the lamb. So I want to 
leave the book of John for a moment and look at some other places in Scripture that help us to understand why John might have viewed Jesus' death as a new Passover and why Jesus himself pictured his death this way. And I want us to ask the question, in, in what way was Jesus' death a new Passover? And what does that mean for us? So, so first thing, Jesus' death is the new Passover because he is the lamb who was slain. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's really clear. Paul says very explicitly, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Earlier in John, when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, here is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's how Jesus is described. When Jesus dies on the cross, something remarkable is happening. We're meant to think back to that Passover meal, the Exodus, all those years ago. Jesus' blood is being poured out so that all who turn to him might have his blood wiped on their doorposts. In Jesus' death, God is preparing the lamb's blood and saying, come, let this blood cover you and your household as I deal with evil, the evil and sin of this world. But more than that, he's saying, let this blood wash you and cover you from within. Eat of Jesus' flesh. Drink of his blood. Don't just paint it on your doorposts. This is not merely an external remedy like the first Passover. The blood of God's lamb will deal with what lies within. For the people of Israel, their immediate experience of bondage was at the hand of the Roman rulers around them. But, but Rome was just an external sign of the deeper problem for Israel. And it's pointed to all the way through the Old Testament. The problem is their hearts. Israel needs a new heart. God's people above all else need God's forgiveness. They need remaking. And so this new exodus of Jesus' death would have to deal, would have to rescue God's people, not, not just from the bondage of Egypt or Rome or external authorities, but the bondage of our own selves. And if that's the case, this new exodus would require death and rebirth, a remaking of every human heart. And so it's a journey that inevitably ties us to the suffering and death of Jesus. And so as John shares his account of Jesus' death, as he paints this picture of the lamb being slain, we're invited to see the grace of God right in the very middle of intense suffering. Secondly, Jesus' death is the new Passover because he walks into the Red Sea before us. I want you to imagine yourself as one of the Israelites standing at the edge of the Red Sea while the wind is raging around you. Behind you lies Egypt, a land of slavery and pain, a land of bondage, the, the, the old life. 
But before you, over the raging waters, in the distance, lies a new beginning. Hope. A promised land for you and your people. A new life. But between your old life and the new lies a raging chasm of chaos. Swirling, raging, roaring waters with a a thin path through the middle that you can't see the end of. The Red Sea in Egyptian mythology, there were all sorts of stories told to frighten children about the power of this Red Sea and the chaos there. To reach this new life, Moses is telling you all, you must enter into the gaping jaws of what to you looks like inevitable death. Jesus understood, and John seems to have understood, that the path to forgiveness and dealing with the blight of sin would lead into the valley of death. That like Israel, the journey to new life would mean walking through the Red Sea, into the jaws of death and suffering, that the old might die and the new might come. So the only only way that Jesus' death means anything for you and me, the only way it actually achieves anything, is if we join Jesus in the Red Sea, join him in his death and suffering, so that we might join him in his resurrection. Romans 6 says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Jesus' death is the new Passover because he holds back the waters of death and steps into it, then invites us to walk with him into death, suffering, and new life. See, suffering, according to the Christian story, the story of Scripture, is not something we can escape. It's not something to to run away from in the afterlife or to pull ourselves out of, but it's actually the necessary path to eternal life. Thirdly, Jesus' death is the new Passover because he births a new kingdom. See, the story of the Passover, the story of Exodus doesn't end when Israel crosses the Red Sea. It culminates at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God speaks from the mountaintop to Israel, revealing his glory and power. And his first words to them are these. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He then gives them a law to live by, a law designed to form them and teach them how to live as a holy nation of God's goodness. And so the Passover culminates with God forming and creating a new nation, a new kingdom, a new people who will take his blessing out into the world. John, at the end of his book, 
and we've seen this in chapter 18 and 19, uses a lot of kingship imagery. As Jesus drags his cross, Pilate makes the public announcement in three different languages so that everyone will know this is the king. Whatever Pilate intended by this, John wants us to know the king is here. A new kingdom is born. The great Passover will culminate in a new kingdom under the reign of a suffering, crucified, risen and exalted king. Colossians 1 describes it like this. For Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we're a new people, a Passover people. And as Passover people, we walk the way of our lamb who was slain through the power of the Holy Spirit, united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, sharing in his suffering that we might share in his new kingdom life as well. And so... We find that as we look at the tools and the hints that John gives us and the rest of the scripture gives us for understanding Jesus' death, we find these things, these three ways of understanding Jesus' death. And there's many more ways of understanding it as well. First of all, he's rescuing all who will wash themselves in the blood of the Lamb. He's opening up a pathway through death for his people to follow. And he's birthing new life, a new beginning, a new kingdom into the world, a kingdom born from the ashes of death. So there's obviously endless ways that we could talk about what Jesus' death means for us and how this event changes the world. But for today, I'd like to just focus on what this great Passover shows us about suffering and our own experiences of suffering. First of all, nowhere in Scripture is suffering celebrated as a good thing. Suffering is a blight on God's creation. Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus and asks for the cup of suffering to be taken away from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a whole book in Scripture, Job, written about the problem of suffering. Suffering is real, and it is horrible, and Scripture is very realistic about that problem. Yet the unique message of Christianity is that though it is a blight on creation, Though we should weep and rage against it, the path of hope and life and new beginnings leads through suffering and death. Pain and suffering are an unavoidable part of life. We will face suffering because there is decay and death in this broken world and the world is not as it should be there's no prosperity gospel here 
But where other religions perhaps unanimously try to pull us out of suffering, God's story infuses suffering with meaning and hope. It tells the story of a world that can only be saved by someone entering into suffering and death and opening up a path from the inside. And this is why the cross is so central to our story. Without death, the Red Sea remains unconquerable. Suffering remains inexplicable. And death remains king. But what does this have to do with our own experiences of suffering? Well, sometimes we've painted this picture of Jesus' sacrifice like God plucking us out of suffering and rescuing us from pain. But actually, I don't think that's the picture that scripture presents to us. Yes, ultimately, we look forward to a creation where there will be no more tears or pain. But in this life, Jesus' death shows us the way to new life. Before new life can come for us, we must die. And that's true spiritually and physically. When we celebrate baptism, we did that at Winmalee last week, we celebrate that a person has left the old life behind, died to their old self and been raised with Christ. There is death before there is life. Likewise, these mortal bodies will fade away like grass. We'll feel the pain of weary bodies as they age and decay. We will groan and grieve and lament at the death and suffering around us. This week, many of us have mourned and grieved. Michael Toolman. We will groan. We will cry. But those groans are now tinged with hope like storm clouds with golden edges that give us this little glimpse that the sun will shine again at some point. Because out of these ashes, new life will come. Behind every moment of suffering lies the promise of the cross. This too will one day, by the grace of God, become life. Suffering for God's people is never meaningless. It's walking the way of Jesus. Romans 5 reads like this. We also boast in our sufferings. I'm not sure boast is the right word. We also boast in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. Boasting, I don't think, here means we ask for suffering or you have to like it. It doesn't mean we don't weep bitterly or rage against it. But we know that in God's miraculous ways and in his time, life will come again. The final thing I want to say is that the cross also transforms how we walk with others through suffering. 
Sometimes we want to rescue people from pain. We want to do that quickly, now. We want to be the saviour of others from their pain. And we might callously try and cheer people up when the timing's not right or, or speak trite words, everything will be okay. And I know that we do that out of love, but I wonder if the reason that that feels so wrong for a person who is experiencing suffering is that actually we're meant to sit with grief and suffering for a time to process and let God's spirit work slowly in us, to let those seeds begin to germinate out of the ashes of our grief and suffering. And so maybe a cross-shaped response to the suffering of others looks like being willing to sit with people in their suffering and say, I'm with you in this, praying for new life to come from these ashes in God's time, in his ways. And in the meantime, I am here by your side to walk this journey with you. You know, people often ask this question, if God is good, why does he allow suffering? I'd like to flip that question around. If God is not good, why would he suffer for us? Why would he transform suffering and infuse it with hope turning it from meaningless agony into a path for new life to come. Could it be that God's power and grace are shown most gloriously in not plucking us out of pain, but in redeeming even the most broken things, especially death? Could it be that at the cross, the most ugly and horrid thing in this broken world becomes the path of salvation and hope and life so that even in our suffering, we might say through tears of pain, it is finished. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, I'm just very aware right now of people who are suffering and the fact that our own suffering and our own experiences of pain change how we hear this message and it can be deeply personal for us, maybe right now. And Lord, we rage against suffering and death in this world, as did our Lord Jesus. We weep bitterly over death and suffering, as did our Lord Jesus as do you. But Lord, we give you thanks that somehow in your mysterious plan, you don't leave pain and suffering as this meaningless agony with no explanation, but you enter into death and suffering to walk with us in our pain and suffering with the promise that you are transforming that into life. Lord, that doesn't change how much it hurts. But it means that even in the midst of suffering, there is the hope of something more in the hands of you who is our wonderful, awesome, good God. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort each person here tonight who is suffering. May we all look to the cross. Amen.